So we draw here together again on this night as we do each year and we give thanks to the one who will preserve the village against the fire of the void. You will be taken by the ones from above in our stead. Your death will bring life to our streets and bounty to our fields. It will safeguard our children and our elders alike for another year. We salute you. Welcome back, rescuers. I'm your host, Che Webster, and this is Roleplay Rescue. That was a clip from my first run-through of Alone Against the Flames, a solo adventure that you'll find in the Call of Cthulhu starter set. Despite the defeat of my own investigator, in today's episode we're going to have a chat with the man very much behind the creation of that excellent introduction to horror and mystery gaming. This is Series 2, Episode 5. Mike Mason began role-playing with what he calls Purple Box Dungeons & Dragons. Nowadays, he's the line editor of Call of Cthulhu for the Chaosium. He is the co-writer of the 7th edition Keeper's Rulebook and the recently released Call of Cthulhu starter set. Back when we first met, Mike edited and published The Whisperer, a zine devoted to Call of Cthulhu. He also set up and ran The Cult of Keepers, a group of Call of Cthulhu scenario writers who organised the UK's Cthulhu Nationals Tournament. Mike then worked for Games Workshop as Black Industries line manager for the Emmy award-winning 40k RPG Dark Heresy. Nowadays, he lives in the small village of Goham near Nottingham, where legends speak of madmen, kings and cuckoos. Hello, welcome to the show, Mike. Oh, hello. Hi, Che. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Thanks so much for coming on. It's an absolute honour to have you. Oh, it's a, it's a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Uh, um, you know, I can witter away with the best of them, so uh, yes, not, not a problem <laughs> at all. Which do you prefer, Mike, a player or game master? Uh, uh, mainly game master, mainly, but I do enjoy... I mean, I, I rarely get a chance to play as a player these days because I'm normally running or play testing. Um, so I yeah. do enjoy being a player uh, in the, the rare opportunities I get. I have to, you know, to, just a bit of both, but you know, I, I find myself more GMing, but uh, uh, I do enjoy being a player when I get the opportunity. Yeah, do you, do you get much chance? I suppose maybe at a convention? Really, that's the only the only chance because everyone I know always expects me to run, despite me saying, "Well, you know, I'd happily, you know, play in this game if you want to run it." And <laughs> they all look at me and go, "Well, well, you know, you know what you're doing. Why don't you run it?" And they're all like, "You know," <laughs> but no. So it's mainly at conventions. So things like uh, Concrete Cow or uh, Games Expo, occasionally. Um, yeah. You know, there's tends to be the smaller conventions uh, that you know the one days or so that I can pop in. And then just just turn up as a regular player and, and play in the game. You know, try something I've not played before, hopefully, and uh, have a good time. So, what do you enjoy most about role playing games? Oh, that's an interesting question. Uh, <laughs> what do I enjoy? Uh, I enjoy the social aspect of role playing games. I think mm. I think it's a. Uh, um, I think it's mentioned a lot, but I don't think we necessarily give it as much credence as, as perhaps it actually justifies. I mean, how many times do people really just go around, you know, a group of people go around someone's house, socialise um, for, you know, three or four hours, all focused mm. on a similar thing, um, where where it is a continual stream of conversation and interaction. There aren't many other activities that we do because, I mean, if you all go around to watch a football game, we're all watching the game and it's not quite the same. Um, um, So I enjoy the social interaction. I enjoy the the story. Uh, I enjoy the kind of a sense of uh, building a story, uh, the sense of mystery that comes with the story in terms of, you know, I don't know how the ending is going to be. And uh, I'm working you know, with the players to reach a kind of an ending that's their version of the story. It may not may not be the one that was originally published or the one that I had in mind to start with, but but you know, mm. we reach a satisfactory conclusion where we feel that we've, you know, told uh, told a collective story in that sense. So I enjoy enjoy that. Uh, just and, and at the end of the day, I like I like rolling some dice and seeing what happens. You know, uh, all, all, all those all those things. But I think you know, ultimately, it's about you know it's a great way for a bunch of people to get together and interact in a, you know, in a, in a focused uh, and productive manner. 
It's interesting what you say about getting people together because um, I think uh, a previous interviewee, Carl Bustler, mentioned this, this the thing about how especially guys don't tend to talk very much, don't tend to get together um, to be social um, and interact. And, and it's interesting what you're saying. Yeah, I think I think um, we don't have many constructs in society that, that kind of do this in, the, in, in a similar way. I mean, there are other things and there are similar things, but... Um, you know, I, I can't think of many things where, you know, every week or every fortnight, the same bunch of people get together for more than, you know, three or four hours uh, and, and, and do, an, do a shared activity, you know, other than, you know, sports. Um, I can't think of anything else. <laughs> so <in terms> of, <laughs> you know, if you're not into sports, it's, you know, what else do you have? Um, so it's um, you know it's, it's that kind of involvement. Obviously, board games are a you know very similar thing. You know, you know, virtually mm-hmm. the same kind of thing. But in terms of you know, you take gaming out of the equation when you know we don't all get together every week and do some cooking, do we? We don't get together and all sit. You know, we might I don't know maybe a book club. Um, but you know, there's very few um, where you build that kind of social group because I mean, often it is where you, you get together and you may you know you may be a bunch of friends. It may include people you don't know, or, or you know, or friends of friends mm-hmm. to start with, and then actually over the course of a, a game, or you know, continue play. You actually develop friendships and build that kind of um, build that kind of uh, small community amongst yourselves. It's uh, it's interesting kind of dynamic. So, what's the biggest barrier for you getting a game? I presume work. <laughs> yeah, well, I, it's it's a funny one. Yeah, I mean, normal. I mean, it's the same kind of problems everyone else faces when you get to our age uh, in terms of you know getting time for gaming because obviously you have mm. other things you know real life going on, um, and you know, and it's my job. You know, um, my it's a job like anyone else's. It takes up you know all my day, sometimes my evenings as well, uh, sometimes weekends, and so you know to find space to put a game in. You know, I've still got to work around my work because obviously that's the priority. So just mm-hmm. like anyone else coming home from work and feeling a bit tired, you know, I've spent all day looking at a computer, writing or editing, developing games. Um, and then to spend the evening, you know, running those games, you know, I've got to be in the mood as well. You know, I've just spent all day <laughs> doing this. <laughs> so, so um, you know, I, I, it's very it, it's very easy to get burnt out very quickly in the sense if I just you know oh I'm just going to play every night kind of thing it's just too much so I have mm. to treat it like anyone else does you know and but um, I um, I find that um, I've got a, a a group a group of gamers that we've been playing for many many years you know um, the one of the players is the guy who actually first ran Call of Cthulhu for me back when I was a kid. Um, oh, and so we you know that, that group's been going for mil, you know million years, but not quite a million years, but quite a long time. <laughs> um, and you know that it's kind of on and off kind of thing group that kind of happens every now and again. Um, but you know, interspersed with that, I have uh, other groups. I'm just starting a new group where we're going to do some uh, you know a break for me. I'm not cause normally I'm running Cthulhu because I'm you know even if it's not a playtest, it's a playtest really. Um, and so I'm running a, a different game. I'm going to just run some D&D for a group who want to just do something different for a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that'd be a nice change of pace. Um, and then, you know, it is, you know, what you might call hardcore playtesting in terms of, you know, I need to playtest something. Um, and the easiest way to do that these days is to do that online. So you can get a bunch of people together and either run something or yeah. um, the author is prepared to run it and I'll play in it, which is a great way to kind of get a player experience of, of something I'll then be editing later. So it kind of, you know, takes all sorts of forms, but uh, I try and try and get in um, one game every fortnight, but it's now ramping up again. So it's probably going to be, you know, two to three games a week, depending wow. on, depending on circumstances, you know, so yeah. What I wanted to talk to you about most, most of anything, more than anything, really, was the idea of horror and mystery role playing. Because I, I know I've known you for ages, um, and I don't know. There's nobody I know who knows more about Call of Cthulhu. I think, but obviously, that's the first really sort of horror mystery game. Um, probably the biggest name that anybody would know. What do you think makes horror and mystery role playing so compelling? Um. I think the majority of people like a good mystery. 
I mean, just look, you know, just translate that to television and film, um, well, particularly television, and just look at the, you know, the proliferation of police, uh, procedural investigations, crime dramas. I mean, every night of the week, there's something on, you know, even if it goes mm-hmm. from the bill right up to some sort of, you know, true detective sort of series. Um, you know, we like a mystery um, and we like dark things. We like crime and things like that. You know, people mm-hmm. have an in, inbuilt kind of fascination for these. You know, not everyone, but certainly there's a large enough proportion to keep TV schedules going um, since, <laughs> since they started broadcasting, to be honest. Um, so I think, you know, we like a mystery. Um, and so I think Call of Cthulhu, particularly when it came out, um, it did something very different to what was happening in role-playing games at the time, you know, which were, you know, um, tended to be, you know, quite fantasy-based, adventuresque, um, you know, heroic in that sense of, in the sense of, you know, you got superhero kind of characters with, you know, big plus 10 swords and, or whatever it may be, or casting spells. And, and, you know, you, you were very much kind of living a kind of a, you know, Tolkien-esque kind of fantasy mm-hmm. game um, where there was a kind of a story, but the story mainly meant we start at the beginning of the dungeon and at the end of the dungeon, we'll, 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 we'll be the end of the story. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there wasn't, the story was, was really whatever the players made it to be. And obviously some groups, that became a story about their group and the interactions and, you know, the war stories that they had from their, from their play. But mm-hmm. many of the groups, there wasn't a story at all. It was just like, I've got, you know, I've got X amount of XP. That's my story. Cause I, you know, <laughs> hacking, hacking my way through this dungeon or whatever, uh, which is fine. You know, or, you know, it's all kind of um, horses for courses. Um, but um, Call of Cthulhu, really injected the idea, the idea and scope that this is built around a plot. There is a plot. There is a kind of beginning, middle, and an end to a scenario or a campaign. And your characters will become the heart of that story. And it will, and their actions will play out that story as they go through. Because there is a mystery at the heart of it. There is there's something at the heart of it. And um, so the kind of sense of uh, investigative play was kind of introduced through Call of Cthulhu to some degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, where the players were actively not just um, fighting or combating some sort of villainous threat, they were also trying to uncover why they were doing it or what the, what the threat was um, and dealing with the repercussions and implications of that, which, which was kind of a, I guess, to some degree, a, 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 step, a step up from just, you know, exploring a dungeon, you know, um, there was some greater mystery to be had, so I think people enjoyed. I think people enjoy that. You know, people enjoy doing murder mystery nights or that kind of stuff. Watching that kind of film, and I think it's no different. It's that it's, it is the same kind of scratch to some degree, and um, you can become quite. It's quite immersive. You know, you you, you know you uh, have re- revelations during play in terms of the plot and and. You know, they, they, they're great moments to have as you kind of connect the pieces of information to then realise a larger picture. Um, I think that's that's very engaging and, and very rewarding too. Um, so mm. I think that's that kind of helps. I'm thinking back to 1981 when it, I think it was when it first came out. And, I, you know, there's the horror aspect as well. I kind of wonder what it was about Lovecraft's work that kind of, you know, made it so rich. Any thoughts? Um, well, I think there's a, again, a bit like crime and mystery, there's an inbuilt human fascination with horror. I mean, some people, you know, don't like it at all, but for most of us, there's a kind of a, you know, we enjoy a bit of a safe scare in that sense. Mm. Um, but, and in terms of Lovecraft's work, I think, you know, what he had done, uh, and certainly if not himself, it's certainly the circle of writers around him and then, you know, and then they kind of been, they they then became inspiration for other writers, created um, created this kind of mythos, created this kind of worldview uh, in terms of horror that was quite different to anything that had really come before. This kind of co- sense of cosmic horror, where you know mankind is uh, insignificant in the in the cosmic scale of, of things, um, that kind of that kind of hit certain buttons in terms of the kind of zeitgeist in terms of public perception, you know, as we, 
kind of go through that period in the kind of early 20th century between the world wars um, where people were starting to question question you know <laughs> where we were in terms of our history in terms of where we are in the, mm-hmm. in the universe and so that so the kind of stuff that um lovecraft and fellow writers was, was writing about kind of was was kind of being some to some degree perhaps influenced by that kind of collective consciousness about you know as, asking about you know where, where we are in the world uh, and in and in you know and in life um mm-hmm. and i think you see that mirrored through the decades as we go forward, you know, the kind of the 60s revolutions and, and, and kind of uh, call to kind of greater consciousness and, and questioning, um, again, kind of maps onto that to some degree. Um, uh, to the, you know, to the millennium when, you know, everyone thinks the world's going to end or the computers are going to stop working. And, and it's kind of like, you know, we're part of a bigger thing, but we are, we are limited in our ability to engage or stop it. You know, the, you just take Y2K as an example. Well, the Millennium Book was going to destroy civilization, and everyone <laughs> knew it. And everyone, you know, everyone knew it. And you could, you know, try and stop your computer, you know, going mad and turning on, or turning on, you know, turning on you. Um, but, you, but you know, in, in a sense, it was just going to happen. We, you know, we were powerless to to stop it to some degree. It was, just, we, you know, we literally got to the point where we we're just going to have to wait and see what happens. You know. Um, and of course, you know, that was all, you know, nothing happened. But um, if you imagine the build up to it, you know, we're literally kind of at this point, well, there's nothing we seem to be able to do. We, you know, we tried these fixes and stuff. We hope it's going to work, but we're powerless really to know what's going to happen in the, in the larger scale of things. You know, perhaps mm-hmm. civilization will crash <laughs> and so on. So <laughs> what I'm trying to say is that the, these kind of common themes throughout throughout the kind of 20th century into the 21st, um, some some in some way relate to some of this kind of greater kind of cosmic awareness that Lovecraft was kind of writing about uh it, within certain of his stories and, and which again as I say was extracted and, and um developed and built upon by other authors mm-hmm. uh, as we go forward um I think I think that's that's what you know he Lovecraft did something different basically um and it, it, it uh you know Lovecraft is often considered to be a you know a horror writer's writer because of the way he did things and the way that you know the kind of concepts and themes that uh, that he you know that he talked about in his stories um, you know putting aside the kind of the the more kind of distasteful kind of stuff that Lovecraft wrote particularly in his letters and and some of his uh, some of his uh, shorter stories you know the kind of racism stuff like that you know if you you know you have to kind of understand that just like any other historical writer that has distasteful views and beliefs that, you know, that we find in the modern day distasteful, you know, Lovecraft's not Mm. the only writer to have done this. We can still find um, some inspiration in terms of, you know, the, the, on the, in the kind of the, and the fictional sense of uh, the kind of the, the horror, the horror cosmic, the weird story, the weird genre that he was writing in um, can still inspire, you know, Whilst we can also say the man himself was uh, probably quite a distasteful and unusual, weird character that we probably wouldn't want to game with, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting you talk about the sense of powerlessness. Um, uh, many people have commented uh, that role playing games, especially American market for role playing games, you know, is that power fantasy. And I kind of sometimes think that Call of Cthulhu is the antidote to that. Um, I've always felt largely powerless when playing in a good game. Do you think there's some truth in that? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I have quite a strong view about this. Um, for me, you know, what, what we term as heroic fantasy in terms of, you know, beating down dragons and killing kobolds and orcs and stealing treasure, we call that tends to call that heroic fantasy to some degree. I don't think that's particularly heroic. I mean, it can be, depending on the story, but it can be. But it, it's not particularly heroic. Not not in a modern, not in a modern context. Not in not in the context that we understand it in terms of, you know, real human life. You know, um, none of us run down the street with a vorpal sword attacking villains <laughs> and doing so. You know, this is why we have our whole escapism kind of thing with superhero films. But you know, as an aside to that. In Call of Cthulhu, you have the characters are real people. They're, they're normal, average people who don't have special powers. They don't have, um, you know, special equipment. They're just regular people. 
and mm. they are thrust into extraordinary circumstances um, and they have to deal with it. And, mm. um, and so by dealing with those circumstances and actually in some, you know, in some cases, you know, finding a resolution of some sort, some sort of victory, which could be a total victory, it could be a minor victory, it could be a pyrrhic victory. Um, mm. I, I, you know, that, what we have is, you know, in, in a Call of Cthulhu campaign, you have a group of characters that, that te- technically they start off in the library uh, or, or the gas station or the cafe, cafe, and at the end of the campaign, they've just saved the world and no one knows about it. To mm. me, having somebody who's got nothing special about them saving the earth is far more heroic than than running into a dungeon. You know, I, mm. I, I you know, I, I agree that you know the kind of heroic fantasy can be heroic and cool, but but for me, you know, it's like as in real life, the real heroes are real people. You know, they're the firefighters that go into a building and come out. You know, there's nothing special about mm. them other than they're well trained and they do it. Um, and so. For me, Call of Cthulhu emulates that kind of real life in the sense that it's just regular people to, who become, you know, you don't set out to become heroes, but they are become heroes, you know, by their very actions and what they do. So I think mm. in that sense, it becomes that kind of, um, you know, slightly different version of, of that kind of hero hero narrative. And the other thing in terms of the mechanics, you're absolutely right. It does, it works completely antithetical to, to what you have in kind of mainstream fantasy gaming at the time and then still to some degree you have today is that you know whereas most role-playing games are about the acquisition and accumulation of power and wealth Mm. call of cthulhu is actually it's about the loss of these things it's a loss of power it's a loss of your um ability to to um become remain part of human civilization as you Mm. as you as you become aware and learn the realities of the fictional world cosmos of the game, um, you know, you, you, your character actually becomes corrupted and, and diminished to some degree. And that's, again, even more heroic in the sense because they're still fighting, even despite they, they're worse than they were when they started, <laughs> that they're still fighting the good fight. And so, um, you know, everyone likes an underdog, I guess. But uh, mm. that, that's, for me, is, you know, what it's all about. It's, you know, you're telling epic stories with with real you know real i say real people i shouldn't i mean normal people so uh yeah mm. what do you think makes call of cthulhu you know a really good way into the hobby then um i think for all the things i've just said to some degree i think i think it's a game that because you're playing you know you play you choose your character you you know i want to play a librarian i want to play a private detective i want to play the waitress um mm. in the cafe um, they're all very accessible occupations that we instantly know what that means. It's not like saying, um, I want to play this character that I, I now need to read some background on because I don't understand what a barbarian is. I don't understand mm. what a rogue is. I don't, you know, whatever it may be. Um, and it's set in a, a mythical land, which I know nothing about. So I now got to learn <laughs> what, what, what is Waterdeep or what is, you know, some other, you know, some other fictional place. Um, there is, a, you know, and well, you know, that's not hard to do, but obviously that is a, that is a potential barrier for someone who is, who's got no time mm-hmm. and no interest in, in learning about a mythical land uh, who just wants to get into doing something else. So I think um, in one sense, it, there's less of a hurdle to get into with, with a game like Call of Cthulhu because, the character, you know, you just say, what kind of character do you want to play? You know, what's what's what do they do as a living? And you just say, well, I want to be a car mechanic. Okay, let's do that then. Um, <laughs> and then, and then, as part of the play, you become immersed into the actual wider game and plot. Um, so that's one mm-hmm. one aspect. I think it's very accessible for people to just pick up a character and say, right, we're we're doing a basically. You're in a haunted house. What do you want to do? And everyone can relate to that. Everyone can kind of go, okay, well, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna run outside, or I'm gonna go to the attic, or whatever it may be. Um, the, the actual circumstances of most of the plots start out very kind of you know simply in that sense. Um, mm. The rules, I think, also um, aid to that kind of um, aid in terms of getting people into the game very easily and simply. It's a very simple system, you know, percentile system based on based on percentages. And so once you've explained that, yeah, well, you've got a you know seventy percent in climb, that means you know you've got seventy percent of the time you're going to make a climb roll. People instantly get it. It's very intuitive, um, and so um, 
it's there's no kind of uh, additional kind of layer of necessarily of uh, you know of added benefits and bonuses you need to really worry about and understand how this how this how this works in combination with that power and you haven't got to worry about it like there, aren't, there isn't anything like that it's just you know <laughs> you, you just you know this is what this is who you are this is what you're good at this is what you're bad at you know now 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 interact with this world so if you know that you're bad at interacting with other people when you go and do it you it, it will be all the more greater fun when you do it really well or you do it really badly and it and it, spurns, it sparks off some other kind of incident you know some sort of drama um so you know i think it, it works very well it, it, in that sense it being a very kind of intuitive system and it's very easy to quickly engage into the kind of the scenarios and plots because they're a lot of the time they're based on you know um, real things to some degree or, or, or you know or common experiences or stories you know such so as you know go and find out if this house is haunted go and find out you know who's who's committed these horrible murders you know go and find the criminal mm. culprit they're all they're stories that we you know we know and, and understand we haven't got to understand you know what the quasi arg of arg is and, and whether the red the red scimitar of justice will prevail i don't understand any of that what, what's that mean mm. you know so i mean you know but again yeah some people love that kind of stuff some people don't um Call of Cthulhu fits that kind of happy medium ground that everyone kind of can understand it, whether you know, and choose whether that's the sort of thing they want to play or not. Um, so okay, so you know, I want to get back into Call of Cthulhu. What what steps should I take, Mike? Um, this well, <laughs> the there's two things you can do. The the um, the simplest thing, if you want to spend no money whatsoever, is you go to the Curse website and you download what's called the quick start called the Cthulhu rules, which is a free mm-hmm. PDF. And that gives you um, the kind of basic rules of the game and a starting scenario and kind of just gets you to, you know, uh, into it, but it does require you to read it and, and download it and be bothered to kind of get some people together to do it. What we've done um, more recently though, is while that's still available, you can now buy um, what's called the Call of Cthulhu starter box set. Yeah. So, uh, in that, you've got um, three books. Uh, the first book uh, basically has a very, you know, one-page kind of introduction to what is games, what's Call of Cthulhu, that kind of thing. And then pretty much the next page is it asks you to start playing in a choose-your-own-adventure solo scenario. So oh, wow. before you've read any rules or anything else like that, you just start playing a game. Uh, mm. The box that includes dice, so you're ready to go. And basically you play this, you know, solo scenario and in the course of that scenario, it actually gets you and teaches you and handholds you through creating an investigator character. Mm-hmm. It introduces key, the core kind of rules of the game. Um, so by the time you've played it through, even though even though you may, you know, your character may die horribly during the course of it because it's a horror game, uh, you've got a you hopefully got a quite a good sense of what the game is like, uh, mm-hmm. what the core rules are. You've got an idea of how to build your character. So once you've gone through that kind of book one uh, adventure. Book two then is is the is the basic and core rules of the game, which introduces you know the rules, uh, tells you how to create a character, uh, you know how to how to do you know various skill roles, how to you know how combat works in the game, mm-hmm. how the kind of the sanity mechanic works in the game, uh, and so that's your kind of core little rule book there. And then mm-hmm. the third book it, it introduces you to three scenarios that you can play with people, and and they're designed to start off. Uh, with the first scenario is a quite a short one. It's designed for one or two players at most, mm-hmm. alongside you know your staff running it. And then each scenario thereafter introduces the, the option to include some more players in the game, and increases some of the um, increases some of the knowledge about how the rules are used. So they 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 handhold a new person through the game. So the idea is you pick up the box and you've never role played before. By the end of the going through all the books and playing through the games, you are now very pretty well versed, very well versed in Call of Cthulhu. You understand mm-hmm. how to run the scenario, you understand the rules of the game, and so hopefully, um, if you've gone gone through all that way, then hopefully you've enjoyed it and want to do more. And then obviously, then that opens you out to the uh, the options of then you know picking up the full Call of Cthulhu rule book and the different books and scenarios and campaigns that we publish. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, that's the that's the idea, and certainly that's the recommended way to do it now. Is that you know, particularly if you've never role played before or you haven't done for some time, 
picking up the starter set will is a very low bar and very easy way to kind of just get a feel for the game and, and get get to grips with the game. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's 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 how I do it. <laughs> right. So what's changed since the eighties in terms of the game itself? I know you were involved in the creation of seventh edition. Um, you know, I I certainly uh, you know look forward to getting it and then got it and it was you know it's a very exciting thing. But I've got to be honest, haven't really read it. Um, what's changed? Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> as a side note, it's funny. People, a lot of people run Call of Cthulhu and don't read the rule book or read any <laughs> bits that they think they need to read. It's very interesting, given the number of number of times I look on forums and uh, people say, "How do? How, what's the rule for this?" And I go, "Well, yeah. it's just look it up in the rule book. It's really clear." But people, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Young people today don't bother <laughs> to read things. But no, um, in terms of the changes, uh, I mean, Call of Cthulhu has been, um, the system has just evolved very kind of organically over time. And certainly additions one to six were fundamentally exactly the same. There was not any mm. real significant changes, uh, you know, a few dice changes here and there or points differences here and there. But ultimately, it was pretty much the same thing. And you could run a first edition scenario with a sixth edition rulebook and vice versa and really there wouldn't be a lot you know of legwork to do between them <laughs> um 7th edition um one of the reasons for 7th edition was by the time what happened with every iteration of the rulebook from first to six was that with new with new editions of rulebook it would basically be the same book with some added material thrown in mm-hmm. um and over the over 30 years that meant the rule book had become quite confusing. Um, things weren't in a logical order. Um, mm. Rules were all over the shop. You'd find a you know section on combat, for example, mm. and then twenty pages along, you'd find some more combat rules. You know, <laughs> and it's like, are these part of this? Are they optional? I have no idea. That you know, um, and so um, it was a little bit of a hodgepodge together by the end, to some degree. Um, and it wasn't very particularly inviting to new players, particularly players who'd never role played before. It was a, it was quite inaccessible, I feel. Um, so um, the seventh edition, what we wanted to do was kind of rebuild the rulebook from ground up, uh, retaining it as exactly the same game, but throwing in some you know more modern kind of uh, rules additions or, and adjustments, without without changing the flavour or nature of the game or, or the core components of the game. So um, you know it's. 7th edition is still a percentile-based system. You still have skills. What we introduced was um, difficulty levels within those same skills. So mm. um, you may have a 50% in climb. We introduced the, uh, the idea of a hard roll and an extreme roll. So a hard roll is uh, half of your skill. So that's 25% mm. in this example. An extreme is one, one-fifth of your skill. So that's 10% in this example. And, um, and so by doing that, we can actually... Um, gradiate the actual roles uh, in terms of skill difficulties and mm. so on during the game. So, uh, which just adds a little bit more um, balance and also a little bit more kind of uh, leeway for the for the for the keep in terms of game. So, climbing a wall just isn't a straight climb. You can add in environmental factors. You can add in situational factors by saying it's actually you know it's a slippery wall. It's raining. It's a hard roll. Mm. Um, so that kind of adds in a bit of gradiate gradation. Um, we also um, and does that? I'm sorry. Does that kind of like yeah. also deal with uh, the nitpicky thing? I used a lot of people who don't like D hundred gaming always go on about how you know it's five percent here and two percent bonus there and a ten percent off there. I presume yeah. that's sort of essentially eliminated. In yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, what one of the what where we in previous edition you had a lot of you know oh uh, I'll add a situational bonus of plus ten percent and you've got our remember to add that to your skill and, and so on, or, or it's a penalty, so take off this, or you need to make a strength roll, uh, so times it by three uh, for this roll, rather, and then next time it's times it by five. And so we a lot of, you know, bitty bitty changing and so on. So we got rid of that in 7th edition. We had, the, we had the kind of roll difficulty levels, which were just set, mm. and you could pre-calculate them on your character sheet, so you didn't have to do any math during the game. You could just go, right, where it's written on my character sheet, it's 25, that's what I need to roll under. Yeah. Um, and what we did, we got rid of all this kind of bitty bonuses and penalties, and we just uh, we just introduced bonus and penalty dice, which are very similar to the ones in Dungeons and Dragons. So you basically get you roll a percentile dice two d tens, but with a bonus you roll a third d ten, 
mm-hmm. for a 10 dice. So you just choose the best result from those three dice. Mm-hmm. And the same for a penalty, you just choose the worst result. So again, it's very quick. It's very easy to kind of throw on to. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gets away from all this kind of having to do maths and calculations and rework things you know, on the fly during the game. Yeah. So that makes it, you know, a lot, a lot swifter in that way. And, and, and we did that with combat because BRP, um, uh, you know, for some has suffered from the kind of miss, 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 miss syndrome in combat <laughs> where you know, all your characters have got 30% in combat skills. So they keep failing it and combat. So you just spend 10 rounds of characters, not, hit, not hitting one another, which is yeah. not only unrealistic, it's dull and boring as well. <laughs> um, so uh, what we did, we we just ensured that it became an opposed role in combat, meaning that while you could still draw, the 99% of the time there would be an outcome which meant one person had won that particular round of combat. Mm. Um, so um, again, that we felt that streamlined things, we felt that speeded the combat up uh, and made it basically a bit more accessible and, and, and quicker to, to handle. Um, and that seems to have worked very well. Um, combat does flow very well. And I find it more realistic. Some people say it's more pulpy. I find it more realistic because <laughs> I think in most fights, hand-to-hand fights, somebody gets hurt pretty quickly. Mm. They don't stand around for eight rounds missing each other. <laughs> so um, I find it a bit more realistic. Um, so we did things like that. Uh, one one of the things we also did was to kind of codify the kind of sanity and insanity rules in the game. It's obviously a core mm-hmm. component of Call of Cthulhu when you're you're, you're exposing your characters to, to, you know, the realities of the cosmos and things that should not be in terms of human consciousness. And so uh, it affects, affects human minds in that way and they can't cope with it. Um, but whereas before, um, Samus and Call of Cthulhu had kind of fallen into a kind of, there wasn't really a lot of advice or rules or mechanics in terms of what happened once you had gone, your character had gone insane. Mm. What happens next? And there were some phobias and things like that. And, and, may, and a lot of the time... Uh, it seemed to kind of just give license to a player acting a bit silly at the table, which you know, uh, you know, worked or didn't work. Yeah. Um, I so mean, for we, me, it just meant retire my character. <laughs> yeah. So what we tried to do is codify that with some clear rules uh, uh, of things that can happen to an insane character uh, that the GM can can instigate um, uh, that allows the character, to, you know, to continue to be played, basically, mm. which is the whole point. Um, and um, so we you know, provide that additional guidance and, um, and mechanics, you know, strength, strengthened and tightened that up um, to, you know, so players and keepers would know what to do when their characters are in that situation. Mm. So it isn't just the end of the game for that character necessarily. Uh, and there are, you know, uh, ways to do it. And the other thing, I mean, their core priority really was, um, as I say, keeping it the same game and ensuring that it was completely compatible with what had come before. So, mm. you know, other than, other than the odd bit of calculation, if you really must, you know, timesing something by five to create a percentile stat, mm-hmm. um, there's not a lot. You know, there's, a, there's in fact, at the back of the rule book, there is a, about three or four pages guidance on, you know, converting, you know, old material to seventh edition. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, once you've done it once, you realize, actually, I, I don't need to prep this. I can just do it on the fly because mm-hmm. nine out of ten times, there's no need to actually convert anything. Uh, because it's it's a certain game game the, th- the terms are all more or less the same um and it's just understanding that instead of going to a resistance table in the old you know the old rules you're just making a pose roll now and that's pretty mm. much all you need to know and you can run the game without having to do any prep to be honest most <laughs> people do it on the fly these days so yeah thank you it's, it's kind of sounds to me like it's just a lot slicker oh and the art as well oh my goodness that's gorgeous <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, we, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just wanted to ensure that the book, you know, so all the combat rules, fully enough, are in the combat chapter. All the skill <laughs> roles are in the core rules chapter. All the sanity mechanics are in the sanity chapter. So, you know, you can navigate your book very easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, especially when you're in the middle of the game, you do want to refer to it or you're prepping a game and you just want to recheck a rule or what's going to happen tonight. And, it's easy to find, you know, we, we index the whole book that helps as well. Um, but yeah, so one of the things, um, in the last sort of four or five years with Kersium, we've, we've invested heavily in terms of bringing the books into the 21st century. Um, mm-hmm. you know, they are hardback in the main, they are full color. Um, you know, we've, we spent, you know, I, 
when I joined Kersium, my mission was to improve the quality of the content in the books in terms of the scenarios, the way that they're mm-hmm. written, in terms of how useful they are, and their accessibility in terms of people just understanding what the hell they're about. Um, and what we've done as a company is to not only invest in the text, but we've invested in the actual physical products in terms of the hardback and the paper, uh, but we've invested in terms of the, the quality of the artwork and the cartography in the books, which, you know, you mm-hmm. compare one of the seventh edition books to something that was coming out in the early 2000s or the 90s, which are softback, black and white line art of varying quality. Um, and, um, you know, we feel, you know, we're making strides to kind of, you know, feel it's a quality product that people would want at their gaming table, basically. Mm. Um, so, you know, it, it's a, it's a, it's a continuing job because, you know, you look around at other role-playing game companies and the books they're putting out, some really lovely stuff that's out there. You know, mm. we need, you know, we are you know, competing in that market in that sense. And we just want to ensure that our players and fans have the best that we can, we can put out, you know, and, um, you know, they can feel proud about the books that they're getting. They feel that they're value for money and get a lot of play out of. I'm kind of curious about what you would suggest as a sort of top tips for mystery gaming. Um, it's incredibly different to, you know, dungeon gaming or hex crawling or some other kind of, you know, gaming approach. Um, what are your thoughts? What, what do you think is paramount for a good mystery? Um, uh, I th- well, <laughs> it kind of falls on who the advice is to. If it's to the player, it's very simple, is engage with the plot. That's that's why you're there. Mm. You know, don't create a character that doesn't want to go inside a haunted house because <laughs> that's where the adventure is and you know that going in. So why create a character that's going to be obstreperous and not involved because all you're doing is cutting yourself out of the game. Just like saying... People do that. Well, well, it's the same as, it's, you know, I characterise it like, you know, don't go and play, you know, a fantasy game where your character doesn't want to go in a dungeon. Mm. You, you, you know, you, the premise of the game is this. Don't create a character that is against the premise of the game because you won't have fun. Mm. You know, the end. So it's exactly <laughs> the same with Call of Duty. Don't, don't create a character that's not interested in investigation or, or, or doing the right thing and saving the earth and all that kind of thing because you're not mm. going to have fun doing this. Go and do something else if that's not your game and that's just fine. So that's my advice for players is do get involved and do something. You know, it's far more interesting in a game if your character tries and fails than does nothing. Um, and, and particularly with Call of Cthulhu, you know, we have actually mechanics to make that even more exciting, you know, with the pushing roles and all that kind of thing that, you know, what can start out as a very, you know, run-of-the-mill scene. Suddenly, you know, suddenly the building is falling down around you because of your actions. And it's suddenly very dramatic and very fun and exciting. And you've got a really interesting story and get suddenly happening. Um, so that's my advice for players, for keepers, in terms of tips and horror and things. I think, well, it's know your, know your players, understand your players, understand what what they're looking for from the game and, you know, and, and, and use that and use it against them in a way that, you know, understand what they're, what's going to kind of um, weird them out or creep them out of the table in terms of the context of the game. Mm. Um, and... Um, I guess it's kind of enjoy the mystery as a keeper. So, you know, you whilst on one hand you are providing clues and information to the players, on the other hand, you're not doing it all at the same time. You know, you are creating a sense of mystery by giving them half of a piece of information, perhaps, that, you know, that mm. leads them to certain expectations, that when you give them the other half of the information, actually those expectations are turned around and actually it's a, dip, it's a revelation. Um, becomes again a really interesting and exciting part of point in the game when the kind of the penny drop of realization and what you thought was happening isn't actually what's happening it's something you hadn't even considered and suddenly you know you're in a bigger plot or, or, or a more dangerous situation than you first realized so that, that kind of you know being um being um clever with the information how you leak it to players and how you, how you provide the clues um and um using all your tools to build that sort of sense of mystery and, and, and um, atmosphere. So, you know, using your NPCs, ensuring that they're colourful characters, you know, that, that uh, are rememberable, ensuring their locations, you're describing them and you're describing the weather, you're describing the, the, the chill the chill air as you walk down the corridor towards the cellar and the dark cellar and, and you know, um, 
use the tropes of horror films and, and horror fiction, as, you know, and, and build upon that in the game. And but mm-hmm. go with your players, you know, you know, it's 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 you know, it, often with you know, particularly older Call of Cthulhu scenarios, there, there there's there's a story and the, and the and the scenario wants to kind of railroad you through that story, which you know sometimes that's absolutely fine, and other times depending on your play group, it's at odds with what the players want to do. So, you know, be prepared to let the players do what they want to do. It's a shared story and game after mm-hmm. all. And just be, you know, just be clear about how you are going to kind of basically, in the background, unseen by the players, just basically re rework the story components to fit the player's narrative now. So if they, if they don't mm-hmm. go to the library and find this very important clue, well, just ensure that clue turns out Somewhere else, you know, it might come out the voice of an NPC or it might be on a newspaper or they might find it somewhere else. It'll still come out and it's and it's and you're not breaking any rules by doing that. I've heard people kind of go, oh, you know, you've got to play it as written. Well, your players <laughs> haven't read the book, so they can't play it as written. They can only play it by what you present. And if they choose to go and do something else, your job as a keeper, you know, you're, you are the magician behind the counter uh, behind the curtain you, you've got to move things around to make the, mm. to continue the game to make it engaging and to build on it you know because when you're writing a scenario you can't foresee every single possible action the players are going to take you can only take a main kind of middle of the road approach say well the majority of players are going to do this but if your players do x instead of y you need to just roll with it and um mm. it's not hard to do and it's just a case of uh you know, building the story together in that sense. So, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not a, the key pinnacle of the game isn't in opposition to the players. You know, where they're not trying to kill the players off. They're not trying to drive them all insane. What they're trying to do is tell a shared story that, that all, everyone around the table is going to enjoy and have a lot of fun mm-hmm. with. And so, and sometimes that's going to mean, yeah, killing your characters and turning them insane. Sometimes it's not, <laughs> you know, it's a balance. And, um, and that's, that's the biggest tip I can give, that it's not yeah. about, you know, killing them all off as quickly as you can because at the end of the day that's really dull and no, everyone leaves and doesn't play again with you so you're on your own you know mm. <laughs> i found it interesting i i bought the uh, starter set and um actually before coming to talk to you i, I played through the solo story and there's a couple of things i kind of want to pick up on what you just said the first one was about mood because i noticed there are it's a play as you go you know it's that turn the, to the whatever entry number you know kind of game mm. um uh, and but yeah, there seemed to be some of them at two or three in a sequence that were just purely descriptive, um, and they set the scene beautifully. Um, I don't know whether you wrote it or someone else did, but it's just wonderfully kind of atmospheric. And I actually had the moment where you know hair start raising on your back of your neck and things because I could see where this was going. You know, there's a meta yeah. part of my brain. Going, yeah. Yep, I know what's going to happen, um, and here we go. Um, how do you create that at the table? Is it just about kind of careful description? I think, yeah, I mean, it's, as I say, know your players to understand what makes them tick. So if it's about, if it's description, then ensure that you build that in. Uh, one of the things in Call of Cthulhu, one of, in one of the sort of guidance in, in the rule book for the Keeper is that, you know, there are certain situations and monsters particularly that will kill all your players if they just encounter them. Yeah. You know, it's a guaranteed fact. Um, so, you know, what, you know, going back to what I just said, well, you know, that can be fun, but it can also be really dull if the players don't have any opportunity to escape or to do something else than mm-hmm. just get eaten. So there's a kind of, a, there's kind of like the rule of three. Right. So you introduce a concept that if the players continue with the way that they're going, there is danger ahead. Now, mm-hmm. this can be done, you know, via handout to say that, oh, you know, well, last time, when, when, you know, in the diary you find, it mentions a cellar you're supposed to go down. And the diary says, you know, when I went down, I felt a terrible cold presence and I was very scared and I didn't stay long. I, I, I have never gone back there since. That's clue one, that there's something bad in the cellar. You know, <laughs> clue two might be the half-eaten remains of somebody who's crawled out of the cellar and, uh, and clearly something bad <laughs> happened down there. So to, to, blunt, to blunder blindly into cellar based on those clues means that the players know that there's something horrible and bad and it's probably going to eat them down there. So they've had, you know, they've had two clues already and when they open the cellar, they hear something go down there. That's mm-hmm. your third clue, that there's something active down there that's going to eat them. 
So what you're trying to do is you're not only building tension by doing that, you're, you're giving them bits of information that leads to a bigger picture of re- revelation that there's something horrible down the cellar. You're also forewarning them to say, if you go down in the cellar, you're probably going to get eaten. Okay, so is there something else you want to do? Is, is, there, is, there, is there another way you want to handle this? I mean, I'm using this as a very kind of very simple version mm. of this, you know, um, but if you see what I mean, it, the, the, the rule of three kind of does two things. It informs the players that either the course of action they're on is correct or they may need to think around it and think outside the box perhaps and think about other ways of tackling the situation. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, maybe that, you know, the monsters only awake at certain times of the day, so therefore they need to find out when they can go down safely. That might be a resolution perhaps. Um but it also builds that idea of tension that they that, that kind of in this you know we we know that we have to go down into the cellar at the end of the scenario. They know that because they know whatever they need to do is down there. But yeah. they've had this information to so say that if they go down to the cellar, they're probably going to get eaten. So you you built a, you built some stakes already, and by doing that, you're building the tension, and then layering on that with your descriptions about you know the the description in the handout about the the chap who went down in the cellar first the description of the half-eaten remains they find of someone who's come out of the cellar to the description of when they go down into the cellar the the dust in the air the cloying atmosphere the lights and and so on the creaky wooden Mm -hmm. steps builds that atmosphere as you go so as a very kind of rough kind of you know advice that that's you know that's how that one thing kind of builds a number of strands within the game for you that work in different ways. Mm. The other thing I noticed in the, the starter scenario was um, it's built on common tropes. Um, and I, I suppose that's no bad thing. I was kind of thinking, you know, it kind of feels a lot like a few films I watched in the eighties or whatever, you know, I was thinking, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, this is the the creepy village, and there's there's a lot of stereotypes and tropes that go with that. Would you suggest kind of hamming that up? Well, again, <laughs> I keep saying the same thing. Know your players. <laughs> um, yeah, so you, you, it's meant to be a you know an introductory set. So you're building on shared common tropes, as you say. You know, the mm. the, the solo scenario in the book. You know, you can certainly say it is informed and pos- probably inspired by films such as The Wicker Man and so on. Um, and that's no bad thing because um, going in instantly, the player starts thinking, this is like The Wicker Man. They're instantly yeah. on edge. They're instantly on, this is something bad's going to happen. They know there's a sense of doom already that you didn't have to do mm. anything about because, you know, it's just that kind of recognition. And so that mm. can work That can work well for you. Um Obviously, what you don't want is suppose, oh, this is the Wicked Man. I'm just going to go do that. I'm going to go and shoot this guy here. It's like, well, okay, that's kind of, you know, you, you're going a different way. And you know, mm. the GM needs to kind of rebuild them into the story in, in there and have repercussions to the action. So if, if they're playing against the story, perhaps. But, but yeah, no, that sense of, you know, using tropes, it's what we do. You know, there's no, there's no, there's many, very few games that don't build on common tropes, you know. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, whether it's the quest for, the one ring in Tolkien in every fantasy game or the, the, the young boy who's secretly the Lord of the land that, you know, the, who's, you know, gets told that the old man who looked after him is actually Gandalf or a wizard or somebody, you know, those are very common tropes in fantasy. You've seen them time and time again in fantasy fiction. Um, just the same as in horror, you know, there's, there's, there's tropes within horror that are, you know, mm. don't get down the cellar. You know, bad things happen at night, and um, you know this place. All the locals look at you funny, so they're clearly all in on it. You know, and and obviously, depending on when and how you're playing this game, if you're just starting out, then using those tropes as they kind of are, everyone knows what they're getting into. Everyone has a set expectation that you can then build and work to and enjoy. As mm. you play more. Obviously, there's a lot of fun in inverting those tropes and playing against expectations. So instead of the village, you know, you're thinking, you know, you're going and thinking, oh, the villagers are all cultists. Actually, well, actually, no, it's, they're just, they're actually acting normally. It's your perception of them that, that you think they're bad. So when you come to act on that and find out that it's wrong, you're, you're kind of throwing, you know, throwing things in the air and, um, and creating a different, you know, a different way that the story's going to go. So it becomes, you know, fun in a different way. So inverting the tropes and playing with them works in equal measure, but it depends on you know where you are with the group and the kind of game you're trying to run. But mm. yeah, that that you know, getting ideas from books and films 
it's never been a bad idea. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'd yeah. I say when I was younger, I used to be kind of put off playing Call of Cthulhu because I always sort of figured I don't know enough about horror or I don't know enough about, you know, I'm not smart enough almost really. Um, but I guess that was totally wrong. I mean, I always say, if somebody says that, there is, I, I completely get that some people don't like horror. I completely get that some people don't don't enjoy that sort of thing. And, that, and that's just fine. I'll tell you, know, there are plenty of other mm. games that, you know, let alone cares who makes it, other companies make, that you're going to enjoy. And that's just fine. It's not for every single person in the world. Um, however, um, if you've ever watched Scooby-Doo and you enjoyed it, then you've kind of are going to get how to play Call of Cthulhu. <laughs> If you ever watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you're kind of going to get how to play Call of Cthulhu because it's based off the same kind of tropes. You know, you go in as a group of outsiders, you find some mystery or some situation that you have to then solve and deal with. And on the way, you're going to meet some strange characters, some in, you know, some unusual ex- uh, locations and perhaps some monsters. Um, so, I mean, you know, they're all within our bounds of understanding because, you know, if you've seen Scooby-Doo watch Buffy or any other kind of horror film, um, you get it, you know. So, it's, mm. but it's just a case of whether that is something you want to enjoy. You know, you enjoy doing. You know, and certainly there's a lot of people that do. And, and yeah, and the other thing is, I guess, to say is that for people whose main game is isn't Call of Cthulhu, um, Call of Cthulhu provides a really different change of pace that people mm. that people find that actually they've just finished a campaign, a fancy campaign, and they want to they just want a break between the next before they start a new one. Uh, and Call of Cthulhu works very well as a kind of a palette cleanser where you can play a, it works really well as a one-off scenario. You know, you play the one night in the haunted house or the one night mm. in the street and it kind of just, you know, uh, changes the pace a little bit and uh, gives you something else to do. And also because Call of Cthulhu is very kind of story driven and role playing driven, uh, you know, for groups that aren't, that don't do a lot of role play in terms of, as, uh, you know, they, they're just more interested in kind of, you know, the, the, the rolling the dice kind of angle. Um, it, it does help to kind of broaden their horizons as well to some degree that they can then introduce mm. back into their regular game. So it works very well like that as well. And then, you know, there are groups that, you know, try it once and then carry on playing. And, you know, they play mm. whole, you know, year, two, three year long campaigns, you know. So um, it works. It's one of them wonderful things. It works really well as a one shot, one, you know, one session game. And it works really well as a three year game as well. Speaking of tropes, um, I noticed that you you kind of and I, I bought it actually. Pulp Cthulhu, you you worked on um, a while ago. What was the big appeal there? Why did you do that one? Call the Cthulhu, uh, Pulp Cthulhu. Mm. Um, basically, um, a lot of the time when you play Call of Cthulhu, you do get players and groups that want to play it a bit more like in the style of Indiana Jones, a little bit more kind of action orientated. Who are less, who are less in you know, who were less interested in the kind of like the cold, dark, grim, slow burn kind of mysteries that you know Call of Cthulhu does feature. Mm. Equally, Call of Cthulhu does feature um, scenarios and campaigns that are, are more action based. They're more kind of you know immediate in that sense. Mm. And so, um, Pulp Cthulhu was was a way that um, is a supplement to the main rule book. It basically introduces um, some new rules that you can bolt in very easily into the game that actually um, addresses certain issues with Call of Cthulhu in some people's minds. So uh, Call of Cthulhu, your characters are human, they're very fragile, so they die very easily. And so sometimes in a campaign, that can that can become problematic in that if your characters keep dying, you can become disengaged with the campaign. Um, so Pop Cthulhu introduces your investigator is slightly better, slightly better experience, slightly tougher, uh, can take a bit more of a knock. And so they are, their longevity is better. Um, it plays the kind of pulp style in that the characters do have kind of pulp talents. You know, what, what's the thing they're best known for? You know, whether it's, um, you know, being able to take on, you know, a whole bunch of people at once in combat to being... Uh, you know, understanding the secrets of the universe or whatever it may be, uh, you have you have little talents that uh, that kind of uh, help to define your character and, and give you a mechanical kind of advantage in the game. Um, so they're kind of bolt-on kind of rules that kind of play very much in that kind of pulp sensibility and genre. 
uh, and they're scalable as well. So all of the rules in pulp, you can scale them up and down and there's advice on how to do that. So it may be that you, you don't want a lot of pulp, you just want a little, you just want characters to be slightly tougher and more survivable. You can just mm-hmm. basically increase that scale of the characters. Uh, but if you want to go all all stops out and you want to include psychic powers and weird science and uh, insane um, pulp talents, that's all there too. So again, you can scale, slide the scale up and down. So Pulp Cthulhu works very well for for groups that are more action orientated. So I find that if you've got a group that's been playing a lot of kind of, um, you know, to catch all terms, kind of generic kind of fancy kind of game where they are kind of, you know, 10th level heroes and they're, you know, got lots of magic items and they're, they're very used to kind of, you know, having their way with, with the monsters. Um, Pulp Cthulhu is a very good middle ground between the systems. Uh, in that it kind of plays to that kind of sense of action and adventure, um, whilst um, whilst also you know building off the kind of the uh, the the tenants and, and and styles of Call of Cthulhu play. So it's a happy medium in a sense. Um, mm. And so if you don't want to spend weeks in a library in Pulp Cthulhu, we you don't spend weeks in a library. You spend spend an hour in the library, know where you're going to go, and then get there, <laughs> you know, and then do yeah. do what you've got to do. Um, and so. Um, it works very, very well uh, because of that, and um, and so again, it, it, you know, for Call of Cthulhu players, it's a nice change of pace. If you want, you know, you play the a sort of a grim and gritty kind of Call of Cthulhu, very kind of downbeat kind of horror scenario. Well, you don't necessarily want to do that every single week. Some some nights you want a night off and and kind of relax a little bit more. Um, and so, playing a kind of a pulp Cthulhu uh, scenario or campaign uh, where you're where your characters are a little bit more like Indiana Jones or The Shadow or whoever it may be from Pulp Fiction, um, you know, it, it's a lot of fun, basically. Mm. So um, it, it allows, you know, if you want to be swinging from chandeliers and, you know, shooting two guns at the shock off that's coming, you know, that's, you know, whatever. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lot of fun in that sense. So it's a, it's a nice... Um, meeting of minds between the horror of Call of Cthulhu and the kind of the pulp genre, basically. Mm. And, and you've got to remember that obviously Lovecraft and those early kind of weird fiction writers were writing for pulp magazines. So, mm. you know, it is not like saying it's a different game. It's the same game. You just, it's just It's just the kind of the attitude you have to how you play the game, basically. It's slightly different. Thank you. I appreciate it. we're up to an hour. I uh, just wondered, do you have any sort of final tips for a person coming back to the hobby? Um, I think um, I think there's a there's so much more accessible now than back in the day, and that you know even if you know you decide you want to get back into the hobby and you know you, you don't know any players nearby, the fact you can go online and you can actually find a group online or you know build a group online and play through mm. you know Skype or Hangouts or Roll Twenty or Fantasy Grounds or whatever it may be, um, is brilliant. You know you could be playing a game. You know that you never thought possible. You know, with, you've got a player in America, you've got a player from in England, you've got a player from Italy, player from Norway, and you're having a fantastic experience because you, 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 you know you're making new friends. Um, so I think online gaming is fantastic uh, and, and a really accessible way to start. Um, if if you do have a games cafe or a, uh, a shop near you, then you know, obviously you know go there and you know find fellow you know like minded people and get involved um there's all you know there's 101 gaming forums out there that if you just want to try try something and just say i want to play in a game you know i just want to tip dip my toes back in the water then um you know there's there's always people saying yeah well come and join my game or well you know we will put a game together for you you know let's give it a Mm. shot one night you know so i guess it's don't be afraid you know that it's a very welcoming community the gaming community these mm. days and um it's open to everyone and uh, there are groups and people who are willing to help you out and get you started and give you some advice and so on so you know mm. just don't be afraid and go for it really thank you mike's awesome no worries thanks thanks very much for allowing me to whittle whitter on for an hour chai <laughs> thank you <laughs> Uh, we've always done that over the years, haven't we? Oh, and I see there's a Berlin book coming too. I'm dead excited about that. Yes, yeah, I'm very excited about that myself. It's uh, Secrets of Berlin. Yeah, it's uh, 
just in layout at the moment, so it won't be long before the PDF and then the print book's out. And it's all about the kind of 1920s uh, Weimar Republic Berlin with all the crazy political stuff and the cult stuff going on at the time. And that's even before you then layer in the kind of the Cthulhu mythos on it. So, uh, mm. yeah, looking, looking forward to that. <laughs> Lovely. Thank you, Mike, so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks again. All the best. I hope you are enjoying Roleplay Rescue. If you ever want to get in touch, ask questions or share your point of view, you can leave me a voice message. You can also drop comments onto the Roleplay Rescue page on Facebook and the even more popular page on MeWe. Just search for Roleplay Rescue on those social media platforms and you can follow the pages with an easy click. You can even email me via hello at rpgrescue.com. I'm Che Webster. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next weekend with another episode of Roleplay Rescue. Game on. Game on.